This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for December 30th, 2020. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, I know that you were both on the clinical service in the spring during the initial surge in COVID-19 cases, and now you're back on clinical service. How have things changed? Lindsay, what do you see? Well, Steve, it's incredibly frustrating and sad, the surging of cases around us in the community, which is unfortunately a failure of routine public health intervention. Not that the public health folks have failed. It's just the ability for us to do public health measures that can control transmission have not worked out well. And we have more cases now than ever before. The hospitals are filling up. Our hospitals are filling up and close to capacity. And that's incredibly frustrating in that we haven't learned the lessons of routine public health and its application. However, there is some hope in that we have a better understanding of the transmission of the virus, how to protect ourselves, how to use PPE. And I think that transmission among healthcare workers in the hospital environment is dramatically decreased. And we, as we care for patients, feel a little bit better that the risk of caring for patients is dramatically less. And with the emergence of vaccines and other prevention measures, that brings further hope and reassurance that we can safely care for patients. There also is hope because we have some evidence to guide treatment, both for those things that don't work to not use them, such as hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, and better understanding of those things that do work, such as glucocorticoids, dexamethasone, as well as remdesivir in terms of the benefits that they can bring. However, it is frustrating that none of these medicines are quite like penicillin, let's say, for pneumococcal pneumonia, where it has a tremendous effect that can be seen pretty quickly and universally, of course, until resistance emerges, but where those treatments, once they emerge, were truly revolutionary. Our current treatments are important improvements but they're stepwise improvements, not giant leaps. So it's a mixed bag, Steve. It's frustrating because we have so many cases and so much illness. It's hopeful because we now have some evidence to guide how to protect ourselves and how to care for our patients using science as opposed to desperation. Lindsay, I'd pick up on one of the things that you said, the ability to protect the staff from infection. Because we know that now, the staff are much more comfortable. And I think that's really translated into a substantial change in how we take care of patients. For one thing, patients are seen much more frequently, and I think people are comfortable going in and out of rooms, and that has not led to a large increase in transmission within the hospital. And that means better care. It means that people get seen more frequently. And along with all of the improvements that you suggested that are all around the edges, they're not penicillin, but they're all around the edges, certainly get the sense that outcomes are better. In addition, the care of these patients has become much more routine. So it's not a one-off where we're trying to invent things newly every time a new patient comes in. And I think that also has benefited patients. So I think altogether, the feeling is quite different than it was this spring when the staff were terrified, patients were terrified. And I think that we do a better job of caring for patients right now. Eric, I completely agree. I think there is some exhaustion in COVID, COVID care, COVID precautions. But there is hope, as you say, because we're able to interact with patients better and provide better care. 
But it does strike me the loneliness. And that is one of the features of this illness that still just haunts me. The loneliness the patients feel, particularly the patients who are severely ill, because of the inability of loved ones to come and see them because of the transmissible nature. Granted, smartphones and other devices can allow communicating with loved ones, but there still is an isolation because of the contagiousness. It's offset a bit because staff and care providers are able to see patients more, but they still can't see their loved ones. And that is still a very frustrating feature. One of the aspects of COVID-19 that's become increasingly clear over these months is the role of the immune system, both good and bad. It appears that an overexuberant inflammatory response is at least partly responsible for the late manifestations of the disease. But at the same time, acquired immunity appears to protect well against the disease. What have we learned about immunity and natural infection over the past few weeks? Steve, I'd start out with two contrasting studies published over the last couple of weeks about the immune response to COVID-19. The first was performed at Oxford in which clinical staff were tested every two weeks for COVID-19 by PCR using nasal swabs and had serologic testing every two months using two different tests to detect the SARS-CoV-2 antibodies. The testing was voluntary, so the participants might have been self-selected, but they were all followed prospectively to look for the incidence of positive tests. At baseline, the investigators found that more than 11,000 participants were seronegative, while more than 1,100 were seropositive. So 10 times more were seronegative. Over the course of follow-up, though, there were more than 200 positive PCR tests in the seronegative group, more than half of whom were symptomatic, as compared with only two asymptomatic cases in the seropositive group. Thus, having previous evidence of infection suggests that there's pretty good protection so that people who have been previously infected are far less likely to get disease, and it's hard to tell, but perhaps less likely to get symptomatic disease. The flip side of this comes from a different observation. We know that viral RNA can often be detected in patients after they recover from COVID-19, but how often does this represent real viral shedding? in other words, transmissibility and persistent replication. A group of investigators from Mount Sinai and Memorial Sloan Kettering studied a group of patients with immune defects, including those with rather severe defects, including those who'd recently had stem cell transplants or CAR T cell therapy. More than half of them had severe COVID-19. Several of them had persistence of PCR positivity, but in this investigation, the authors went beyond and tried to culture virus from these folks. They showed that some patients continued to shed viable virus for extended periods, with at least one still producing live virus more than two months after infection. Viral sequencing showed that these were the same virus, so that it wasn't as if these patients had been reinfected. And the patients who continued to produce virus also failed to produce antibodies, so they didn't have a normal immune response. So I think taken together, these data suggest that individuals who produce antibodies are relatively protected, while those who cannot produce antibodies can have persistent infections. Of course, this doesn't prove that antibodies are in and of themselves protective, since other arms of the immune system might come into play and these correlate with antibody responses. Nevertheless, it's clear that we can mount a very good immune response to infection that is protective. I mean, I think that, Eric, these data 
begin to shed light on protective immune responses, and they may protect against future infection. Although the nature of how these data were collected based upon practicalities have intrinsic limitations, but they are encouraging. They don't help us very much in terms of the longevity of the immune responses or the longevity of the protection, in part because they're short-term studies and one has to wait. So they're encouraging, but obviously we still have a lot to learn about the nature of adaptive immunity and the durability of protection. And the nature of protection as the virus evolves itself in reflection to the immune responses it engenders. I think it's an important point, Lindsay, that we don't know about the persistence of these responses and how persistent protection will be. As compared with vaccines, where we also don't know how long protection will persist, the responses to natural infection tend to be actually a little less vigorous than they are to vaccines, which might make you think that the protection may not be as good or last as long. It's clearly true, though, that there is some benefit from having previous infection, at least over the short term. None of these studies were very long term. Along those lines, Eric, I mean, obviously, I'm a fan of vaccines and the immune response elicited as measured. It can be strong, particularly against the vaccine antigen, the spike. But it does raise the question of the value of multiple epitopes that the immune system can respond to. And the vaccines select for what we think may be the most immunologically relevant target for protection. But that's an assumption. I hope it's true. We think it's true. Time will tell. But natural infection does allow immune response to a broader array of antigens from SARS-CoV. That's an interesting point, Lindsay. And I point out that in the Oxford trial that we were just discussing, they looked for antibody not just to the spike protein, but also to a second protein, the nucleocapsid protein. And in natural infection, there are probably immune responses to multiple proteins, clearly we're here, and that might provide an additional increment of protection. So as you suggest, the corollary of native antibodies possibly providing protection is that exogenous antibodies might do the same. But we recently published a study that might undercut that idea. Can you talk about that? Steve, the study you refer to was a randomized controlled trial of a monoclonal antibody. In this trial, hospitalized patients who'd been diagnosed less than 12 days prior to starting the drug received either antibody or placebo in a blinded manner. The outcome was a bit complex, but the investigators used a clinical score that was identical to other trials performed by the NIH, and we've seen this scale used quite a bit. A total of 165 patients received the drug and 151 received placebo. But by day five, the first analysis point, identical numbers of patients were in the lowest symptom categories with nearly identical numbers discharged to home. Adjustment for risk factors made no difference. No matter what way you looked at it, the treatments looked roughly the same. Based on pre-specified criteria that the investigators had set up, the DSMB stopped the trial for futility. So how do we interpret this in terms of the studies that we just discussed? I guess it's possible that antibody isn't actually protective, but instead correlates with something like a cell-mediated immune response, which is actually the important component. But it seems far more likely that these patients who presented a median of seven days after diagnosis 
already had their antibodies, and adding more antibodies on top of that produced little or no benefit. I think that, as you allude to, Eric, biology is complicated. Clinical research is really hard. And the different observations show us different sides of this problem. And then do we understand the model of what we're testing well enough to illuminate the biology? And what I mean by that, and you allude to this, Eric, is do monoclonals that we know in vitro have potency against the virus play a salutary role in clinical illness? And one of the issues raised is maybe timing matters. Maybe at one point when you have initial viral replication without an adaptive or even an innate immune response, adding neutralizing antibodies may make a difference. That's hypothesis. How well can it be tested in the clinical model? And as these investigators suggest, the timing of when the antibodies are given might make a difference as to when they might have a benefit. You can see how much I've caveated that comment because we see the result of this given experiment and then we infer what it might be telling us only having measurements when they were able to do measurements based on the design. And an alternative explanation, Eric, as you suggested, is perhaps the neutralizing antibody isn't as key as we think and other aspects of the immune response may play a, a more relevant role. Many more questions than answers. What can be answered is what was done in this setting gave us this result without benefit. And then we need to look hard to see how to refine our understanding and how to better deploy the intervention. As I said, clinical research is really hard to do because there are so many variables that you have to account for. And I applaud these investigators for conducting this research because they help answer a question that allow us to develop more thoughtful questions. Although it's frustrating, we don't have a clean answer to the biology or to the treatment. It's interesting. Lindsay, there have been a number of news reports about how stocks of the monoclonal antibodies have gone unused, even though they've received emergency use authorization. And I think that this is an indication of, to some extent, why that's true. If it is true that monoclonal antibodies are most effective early in infection, which is when we believe that's true, we know that most people early in infection, A, are not diagnosed because they're not symptomatic or minimally symptomatic, and B, the vast majority of those people are going to do well without the use of antibodies. So trying to identify the population that would benefit from these is not simple. What we know from this, as you said, is that the people who are already sick, sick enough to be hospitalized, don't appear to have a benefit. And so in the pre-hospital setting, who will benefit from them? And I think we don't have a good indication of that right now. So Eric, in your comments, you build on much that we've learned in the last few months from rigorous science. It makes sense that neutralizing antibodies should work. And they've been developed. Some have received emergency use authorization and are available. Yet the clinical benefit has not been clearly demonstrated that's easy to apply. And I think this is related in part to your point that most people get better anyway. And how do you diagnose them early? Also, what surrogates we use. And with HIV, for example, we know HIV viral load is a terrific marker of disease activity. We can treat it with antiretrovirals. The viral load decreases. We know there is a benefit. 
And in fact, drugs are now approved based upon dropping by a half log to a log the viral load demonstrating meaningful activity. And we all think that measurement of the pathogen and being able to decrease the amount of pathogen is a good thing and therefore should correlate with benefit. What we have to realize is these viruses, HIV, for example, and SARS-CoV-2, behave very differently. HIV is a chronic infection, so one has a stability of the viral load over time and therefore a stability to measure it and the implications of a treatment. One of the things that I learned the most from in work that we've published are the placebo groups. And the placebo group in some of the monoclonal antibody studies demonstrated how rapidly the SARS-CoV-2 viral load drops in the first days to week, a log or two. Therefore, how do we use a surrogate measurement like the SARS-CoV viral load to determine efficacy when the natural history in many individuals is such that they clear it relatively quickly. And I think that's part of what we have to figure out scientifically is which markers, you know, outcome like life or death is easy to measure, but fortunately with SARS-CoV is a rarer outcome, although all too common given the burden of infection, and then which surrogates and which surrogates over which period of time in which body compartment provide us the information to show benefit and that's been a challenge because emergence of natural immunity has a profound effect on viral kinetics that we're still defining. It's a very timely point because I saw that the FDA just approved clinical labs reporting out viral loads using the cycle threshold times in PCR. Those numbers were always known, but they weren't available to clinicians generally. And one can imagine that using viral load data might help you with management of patients. It certainly does in HIV. It certainly helps tell us whether our therapies are on target. But as you say, there's a big difference with HIV where the virus is in the blood. It's a very accessible compartment and it's relatively stable. I mean, if you measure it over and over again, you get the same numbers. But swabbing the nose has all kinds of problems. We imagine that viral replication in the nasal epithelium may not represent what's going on down below in the lung, which is often the place that we care about. And the sampling errors in using a swab are very different from collecting blood. So it'll be interesting to see whether the additional information of these CT values is really going to have a big effect. I mean, I think, Eric, as you point out, as technology emerges that's clinically accessible in real time, so turnaround times that are helpful, one could imagine a measurement of SARS-CoV-2 viral load in the accessible compartment, reliably measured, measurement of systemic antibodies, because binding ELISAs and other clinical tests of antibody response might be available with a rapid turnaround. And one could imagine that a combination of the host immune response, viral replication, the clinical wellness or state of the patient could be integrated in a more informed way clinically. But this is hope. These are observations that have biological meaning that we don't fully appreciate. And until we can properly integrate them, it becomes very hard to use clinically. There's one more study that I want to bring up. We spoke a couple of weeks ago about results for one mRNA vaccine, and today we're publishing on the second, mRNA-1273. How did that vaccine fare? That vaccine did very well. 
the vaccine is broadly comparable mechanistically to the one we'd previously published on, BNT162B2. They both deliver an mRNA encoding the viral spike protein that Lindsay mentioned before. And the mRNA gets into host cells, which then synthesize and present that as an antigen to the immune system. This study included more than 30,000 participants who received either vaccine or placebo. It was administered twice at day zero and day 28. Like the previous trial, the primary efficacy endpoint was symptomatic COVID-19, and safety was assessed by collecting both solicited and unsolicited events. As with the other mRNA vaccine, recipients reported more adverse events after the vaccine than after the placebo administration, but these tended to be mild or moderate and they resolved over the course of a few days. And as with the other vaccine, protection was really quite dramatic. There were 185 episodes of symptomatic disease in placebo recipients and only 11 in the vaccine group. And severe disease, which was seen in 30 participants in the placebo group, was absent in the vaccine recipients. Overall, the vaccine had a very similar efficacy to the previously reported vaccine, BNT162B2, of better than 90%. This is great news. It's about as good as it could be. It really provides reassurance that this strategy of vaccination is highly efficacious. We have two independent trials of two very different vaccines, and they give almost exactly the same result. And we need vaccine desperately. So having two vaccines is about twice as good as having one vaccine. So it's all good. So Eric, I agree that these data are incredibly encouraging. And I look at the two studies, the two phase three studies, one by Pfizer, one by Moderna and the NIH, as independent but confirmatory, because they're very similar in design, very similar technologies, very similar outcomes. Differences between the study designs, differences in some of the readouts, but fundamentally, they independently confirm the same findings, which is incredibly encouraging in my view. There's still as much that is unknown that we will have to be vigorous in our pursuit to define. What's the duration of protection? Protection in special populations? Does it impact asymptomatic acquisition? How about transmissibility? So though we learn important findings from this study and the study from Pfizer, it still leaves us wanting to know more so we can better understand how these technologies can be optimally deployed. Lindsay, you were the first author on the mRNA-1273 study, and you also received the vaccine last week. So what was that experience like? Relief. As a provider caring for patients with COVID, COVID can be very serious. And every day, for the last week or two, two, three, four thousand of our country persons are dying and our hospitals are full. My hospital is filling up. COVID can be very serious. Though I helped lead the study, I had to wait my turn to get access to it when it was deployed in my state and my hospital. And I was relieved to get access to it through the deployment system prior to getting serious illness with COVID. And so a relief. But I don't think of it as the answer. It's a layer of protection on top of the other things that I need to do and we all need to do from masking, distancing, avoid congregating, the routine things it's in addition to, not in lieu of. So we have to think about this as another technology to help us in stopping illness in myself and hopefully slowing down transmission, although that's not yet been defined. 
So I hope that it'll make my community a little bit safer, my family, my friends, and also my patients, because maybe I'm a little less susceptible to acquiring SARS-CoV and spreading it, although that still has to be defined. I'm glad that you received it, Lindsay. And I think in general, it's important for people to recognize the fact that those in the know about vaccines desperately want to receive them themselves. And I think that the fact that you're getting the vaccine should inspire confidence in people that you really believe in it, that you believe in its safety, you believe in its efficacy. I hope that when patients turn to their physicians, their physicians will be wanting to get the vaccine themselves and can serve as role models for everyone else because we're really hoping for very broad deployment of these vaccines. Now, before we close today, I just wanted to make note of the fact that this is our last podcast in 2020. And as everyone realizes, it's been a very unusual year. One of the unusual aspects for us, of course, is doing this podcast every week. This is not something that we've done before, or I'm not sure we'll do again. And it's because it's been so difficult. I want to be able to send out my thanks to people for all of their work this year. And of course, I very generally want to thank all of our colleagues in the hospital and hospitals in general who have been putting themselves at risk while caring for patients who have really desperately needed help. More locally, the journal has been closed down. The offices have been closed since March and will be closed for a while. And that has meant entirely different systems. But at the same time, our workload has increased substantially because of the COVID-19 outbreak. And people have really stepped up. The staff has worked extremely hard in the same trying circumstances that everyone has. Having children at home who aren't going to school, having relatives that they have to care for, and trying to set up that room in the attic where they can get something done. And I really very much appreciate their help and their efforts to try to get everything out. And finally, I want to thank you, Steve, and you, Lindsay, for your efforts in putting together the podcast. Now, the man who gets no notice is Tim Vining. Tim has been our sound engineer and sound editor who has the unenviable task of making Lindsay and I sound good. Steve sounds good no matter what, but I know it's not easy. And Tim has been putting in a day every week trying to massage us. So I did want to give this opportunity. Tim, we never hear your voice. Can you unmute and say something? Uh, Thanks, Dr. Rubin. I appreciate uh, you saying that. But honestly, this has been like having a front row seat to what's really been going on this year. So thanks, everyone. I wish everyone a much happier 2021. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Tim. And we look forward to being back in 2021.